Many years ago, when my kids were still in school here in the city, I attended a softball game in which my daughter was playing second base. I'm thinking she must have been in the sixth grade or so. There were only a few stalwart parents in attendance standing off first base. One father in particular from the opposing team stood out because of his jerky agitation walking up and down the baseline. His daughter happened to be playing second base on the opposing team, and he shouted instructions to her all of the time. At one point, the play came to her, and she flubbed the out, which prompted her father to scream out, My God, you are such an idiot player! That should be your name, idiot player! And the game came to an end quickly then, but not before the coach went over and had a little chat with Dad, who clearly would have none of it, and told the coach where she could get off. Several things struck me about this little exchange. One, that Dad was there at all. And two, if he took the time to come, why did he spend it in such a hateful manner? It was intriguing and troubling. Later, as the girls were leaving, I heard one of her teammates call out, Idiot player who lost the game! And I wondered to myself if that name would stick. Now, at the time, I, re I remember thinking I had just witnessed something important, not to be missed or forgotten. Not that it was so very large. I had certainly witnessed worse, grosser behavior. But I guess I was ready for the lesson at the moment because it was as though a window opened on a, a universal human tragedy. It, you know, on, all the way up. All the windows opened up. You ever have an experience like that? All of a sudden, you sort of ceasing. And it stayed with me all of these many years later. Now, intuitively, you know about this tragedy. You know how people are often trained from the time they're powerless little persons to doubt their essential worth. You have an intuition about this. And how in turn their own fragile egos and insecurities lead them to prop themselves up by putting other people down. And they do that in myriad ways. From the exquisitely subtle to the blatantly abusive. I mean, who could deny this is one of the fundamental human flaws? Who would deny his or her own culpability, really? We often participate in this universal conspiracy unwittingly, foolishly, without so much as a nanosecond of reflection. I tell you, it's part of the source of the struggle between races and classes and religions and between women and men and any of the people we wind up defining as the dreaded other. We could always find ourselves better than them, thank God. These tendencies are so ingrained, we're often, maybe very often, unconscious of our own complicity in the tragedy. 
When it's brought to our attention, we tend to see it as a problem for psychologists, sociologists, and educators to sort out for us, to look at the tragedy through the lens of social scientists so that they might then engineer certain cures. And we hold it at arm's length, of course. We develop elaborate methodologies around self-esteem, for instance, and I don't doubt for an instant that social scientists shed light on this and offer palliatives. But this is a much bigger problem, friends, than their tools can fix by themselves. And that's because what occurred to me, what has, what, what I awakened to in that moment at the baseball game, was at its heart, this problem is a fundamental spiritual disease. It's a spiritual problem. Now, in the Gospel lesson, we heard a story with a different outcome. If you were paying attention, you recognize it was also a story about a certain parent and child. In this case, a father and son. Now, granted, it's a bit difficult to pull out the literal details of the story, but the important lesson is there for those with open minds and hearts. We're told that a man named John was baptizing people at the Jordan River. Some among the crowds that flocked to him thought John might be the saving leader for the Jews, the Messiah, the one to lead them into political freedom. But John is clear that another is coming who's more powerful than him. So while John is doing his thing in the river, Jesus comes to be baptized. And afterwards, the story paints that lovely but rather surreal picture that has captured pious Christian artists for centuries, the descending dove embodying God's spirit. Its descent is accompanied by this essential detail, the voice of God. And do you remember what the voice said? You are my son, the beloved. With you I am well pleased. Now contrast that a moment for a moment with, my God, you're such an idiot player. That should be your name, idiot player. That, by the way, is the essential lesson today, holding those two things together. At its heart, Christianity is absolutely unequivocal about the centrality of love. That love is the glue, the force, the grace, the life and breath of God. Life is one of love's primary outcomes. Love is the essence of life force. And it has its genesis in the Creator. All love is an emanation from relationship with the Creator. Love alone has the height and length and breadth and depth to embrace suffering. It calls forth courage and integrity. The way our scriptures speak of it, love is the medium through which all things have come into being, and it defines God's very nature. So the Father says to the Son, You are the Beloved, with you I am well pleased. Now this has, friends, cosmic significance. Because you see, if this is the Creator's, if you will, relationship with all things created, 
There's something really important here to pay attention to. Relating to such a God as this leads to the inexorable conclusion that each of us is cherished beyond time and measure. And if this is true, you can see then that the father in my little softball story was suffering from a spiritual malaise at root. You know, ever since that time, it changed the way I saw myself walking through life and encountering people. I no longer saw the, the fundamental problems as sort of tactical. You know, let's just fix this little thing here in this person and so on. The problems weren't tactical. They were structural, foundational, rooted in an essentially misunderstood spiritual understanding of how the world was organized from the beginning. So the father was suffering from a spiritual malaise. But even now, from this clinical distance, I don't want to pick on him. It's too easy to heap blame on an easy mark. Because the truth is, while we pay lip service to this lovely idea of love in our culture, love, 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 oh, how many times do we hear love? In most of us, in our heart of hearts, we secretly don't quite believe we are loved in the manner that I am speaking. We can't quite believe that we are that valuable in the grand scheme of things. In fact, our more routine earthbound associations lead us to believe just the opposite, that our true worth is suspect. I see that in people you wouldn't normally think of in this way. There's a very good chance that even the most successful among us may be driven by the secret conviction that no amount of success will in the end prove our true value. And most likely this truth lurks in the gray haze of the unconscious because we don't want to face it. We don't want to name it. Because if I name it, maybe it's true after all. We keep our suspicions locked down, as it were, where they can stay safe. And yet they can't help breaking out from time to time, like on the ball field with our daughter, for instance. And I imagine that had that episode been videotaped for that father, he would be appalled ten years later, having it played back to him. And he wouldn't, quote, recognize himself. Do you see why this transcends psychology? Our problem lies in our core, in our soul. With our understanding of the essential organization of the universe and our place within it. 
This is one of the reasons we have the sacramental act of baptism. Now, in a few moments, if we're wide awake, we'll see how far and how deep it actually intends to reach. But if we pay attention, we'll be reminded of what the deepest truth is, namely that every last one of us has a sacred genealogy that reaches all the way to God. Each one of us has a sacred genealogy that reaches all the way back to God. And if we listen very carefully as a drop of water touches our face, we just might hear a voice that says, You are my daughter. You are my son, whom I love and with whom I am well pleased. And if that seeps down into our souls, then starting from the inside out, we'll find ourselves changing, literally becoming what we in fact are in our essential nature. And you know, for one thing, we'll become increasingly conscious. We'll become braver in becoming conscious. You know, it requires a kind of bravery. Because being conscious means I have a willingness to see things as they are. More and more we'll discover how we have capitulated to the power of fear and attempted to prove our worth either by our own striving or by propping ourselves up by putting others down. We'll become increasingly dissatisfied with that way of life. That way of life will no longer have congruence with what we know to be true. We'll find our old patterns unacceptable. And we'll find the patterns of fear in our culture unacceptable. And we'll find ourselves caring more about how well we receive those who have been otherwise rejected or displaced. We'll be thinking less about ourselves and more about others. Right here, in the central act of initiation of our faith, is a revelation of the complete truth. That we feel unworthy is understandable. In the presence of such love, a humble sense of our own unworthiness is a completely natural response. Most important, though, is the full realization that God loves us with an everlasting love that inflated our lungs at the first and set our lives in motion and brought us to this very moment when you are hearing these very words about your sacred worth. Your sacred worth. And the sacred worth of everyone else who shares your pews, shares our city, and our world. When you think about it this way, friends, there is no more grander, there is no grander or more important thing going on anywhere around town this morning than your hearing either for the first time or the hundredth time the deep truth at the core of all things.